The information provided in this show is intended for your general knowledge only and is not intended to be, nor is it, medical advice or a substitute for medical advice. If you have or suspect you have a specific medical condition or disease, please consult your health care provider. You are now listening to The Health Hero Show with Tim James. <laughs> What's up, health heroes? Tim James here, founder of ChemicalFreeBody.com and your host, for the show that defends public health by simplifying and demystifying how to live an energetic life with a flat belly. So if you're into freedom, a healthy gut, and staying young, this is the show for you. What's up, Health Heroes? Tim James here. I'm back with another exciting episode of the Health Hero Show. And today in the house, I've got not one, I've got two guys, two cool dudes that um, actually found me out there in the, in the web of humanity on the internet. And I've got Michael Wallach. And Dr. Mark Bailey, guys, thanks for being here today. Thanks, thanks for having us. Thanks, thank yeah. you, Tim. Yeah. I'm glad you guys reached out because um, this episode today is we're going to be kind of doing, and you know, in the beginning, in the heat of the battle, uh, and I just want to mention too, in the beginning, the reason why I had these guys on is because they have a documentary that they just released called The Viral Delusion. So it's at theviraldelusion.com. I've already started watching it. It's awesome content. Um, it's actually really good content for the layperson, but if you have somebody that's scientific um, or is trying to be super science on you and say the science is settled, um, this might be a good documentary for them to watch where there's tons of science and doctors and, and, and it just, they just kind of square things up and, and put things into reality of what, what actually happened through this whole COVID um, deal. And um, in the beginning, my listeners know I was, I was pretty deep into it. Like I was telling you, Mike, I've, I've got, uh, had uh, the Elmhurst hospital nurse um Aaron Olchesky on I had uh, Senator Scott Jensen who's also a medical doctor talking about like after 30 years of being a medical doctor and family practice that all of a sudden he was told he had to change the way he filled out death certificates and pretty much all roads pointed to COVID um and he's like no this is like you, I'm not going to do this and and he got really railroaded because um he was on like a radio show or something and just said COVID's kind of like the flu and man, boy, did he get heat and they tried to take his license from him. And I mean, it was just like crazy town. So, um, you know, it's kind of one of those things where if they say something long enough and just keep beating the drum, the bigger the lie, the easier it is to follow. And the marketing and the money put into pushing this, um, narrative has been quite extraordinary. And, um, what I've come to find out, it's really interesting is that a lot of intelligent people, are the ones that are really lost in this in this soup of lies. I mean, it's just it's been kind of crazy to me. So anyway, we want to talk about um, the viral delusion. It was a documentary that Mike put together. It took him over a year. Um, Dr. Mark Bailey was um, uh, one of the main characters in the documentary, so he's here today to help assist and answer my questions. So I really appreciate both of you being on here. Um, all right, so Mike, how did what what's your background like? How did you like what got you to start? to do this documentary? I mean, what prompted it? Um, I mean, I think if you go really, uh, I think my sort of my journey into like looking at the medical field goes back to <clears throat> when, um, when my, my wife and I were 30. Um, and she, uh, she, she suddenly um, developed uh, these the huge knees, like one knee would get really, really, really big and for a couple days and then go away. And then another knee would get really big. And then, and then an elbow and um, it, it, it got really weird and it got really scary. And um, she went to, uh, 
three different rheumatologists in New York City, like really like, you know, she searched out like the top of the line, you know, uh, people, you know, Columbia and NYU and stuff. And all three told her the same thing. They said, you've got early onset arthritis mm -hmm. and um, you're, uh, you're never going to be able to really uh, walk again. And um, you should get a cane. God. And the best thing that we could do for you is put you on a regular steroid regimen. Um, and my wife looked up the impact on her own, uh, looked up the impact of the steroid regimen and saw that it was, it was going to, um, it was going to be so uh, hard, I think on her liver, um, that she, there was a very likely chance that she would die in her, in her early fifties. That, so that, that was, that, that's what happened. Um, uh, that's, that's what was going on. And she was 30. Um, and all of a sudden she's walking around New York with a cane and scared out of her mind. And, um, and I, I just, through random luck, I, I happened to hear this, um, doctor, uh, speaking on alternative radio. Um, and he was, he's really brilliant, he's a really brilliant guy. Um, and he had, uh, he had left the, the medical system, uh, the sort of traditional medical system. He had been the chief surgeon at a hospital in New York and he had quit because he was so frustrated with the state of, of orthodox, you know, modern medicine standard of care yeah standard of care that he quit and he opened up his own little practice uh and but he he sounded just absolutely like really really sharp and i, I told you know i told Susie, i said hey why don't you just go talk to this guy and see if he's maybe got any ideas you know and um so she did and she went in uh to see him and he he uh he said are you a professional athlete and she said no i'm not i'm not a professional athlete so he said, what, what is your, what do your bathroom walls look like? And she was like, huh? He's like, what does your bathroom look like? And, and she was like, well, that's, that's weird. Cause I, I hate my bathroom. Um, he says that is the paint peeling along the edges. She said, yeah, he said, you, you've probably got a mold allergy. We'll, um, we'll run some tests, but, um, you should move out of that apartment and I'm sure you'll be fine. And, um, we moved out of that apartment right away. Um, those problems had been going on for about a year and a half at that point, maybe two years. Um, once we moved out of that apartment, the problems went away and, uh, she's never suffered from it again for over 15 years. So uh, you mean it's environment maybe? <laughs> Bingo. Maybe. Is that what your body comes into contact with air, water, food, anything, clothing, mold, what you're, I mean, it's just like. Pretty simple, right? When you look at the environment, it's pretty simple unless you have a medical degree and you're, you know, an advanced rheumatologist studying, um, you know, uh, why why people um, get sick. In that case, it's it's a mystery. It's good for the steroid manufacturers. It sure is. It sure is. You think um, about that. It's it's so sad that like good, hardworking, decent people, the working class of this country, we go into these places to get advice to help us with our health and they give you something that will kill you of something else. Yeah. And, and not even your fix. quality of health. I mean, and then, and it's like the doctors can't do anything else. They have to do exactly what's in the, the standard of care 
guidebook or whatever you want to call it, Mr. Bailey, maybe he can, Dr. Bailey can tell us what it's called, but the reality is they lose their job if they don't follow what they're told to do. They lose their medical license. Mm-hmm. That's hard to do after $350,000 worth of medical bills. <laughs> 12 years of your time studying. Okay, so you had a personal, um, obviously a, a real personal uh, experience with your wife and her situation. You saw her heal naturally just by removing toxins in the home. Um, you started questioning it. And then how did, how did, how did you two meet? Um, so I, um, you know, fast, fast. So, so that, that opened my eyes to, to like, you know, the fact that we have to be, you know, really savvy consumers of what story the medical industry is selling us, you know, day to day. Mm-hmm. Um, and that same doctor called the new England journal of medicine, the new Enron journal of medicine. He was like, <laughs> you know, that, that, that's a, that's a brochure. That's a sales brochure. And you have to be very wary of that. Um, fast forward, um, when I was making this documentary on, on, uh, the pandemic, I mean, when, when the whole thing began, um, because of that experience and other experiences that I'd had, um, I wanted to search out different viewpoints on what was going on. You know, we were clearly being sold this one singular narrative. And um, I, I was just curious, what, what do other doctors, you know, have to say, you know, what are other perspectives? And um, as I did that research, I found, um, I found Mark Bailey's wife, uh, Dr. Sam Bailey, uh, who was speaking out um, on YouTube <laughs> for a little while. Yeah. And um, she, uh, she, she was laying out a lot of really interesting facts um, that weren't being reported in the, in the mainstream uh, media um, about the invalidity of the tests that were being used uh, to, you know, quote unquote, diagnose, quote unquote, COVID. Um, and, you know, a, a, a lot of other factors uh, that were going into this worldwide, you know, diagnosis and now you know everybody's got this this new disease and she was pointing out the contradictions um and so i reached out to to sam i really wanted her to be in my documentary um and at that time uh it was pretty tough for her because they were you know the system was really was was coming at her pretty hard Mm -hmm. um and uh so i it was just hard for her to do interviews at the time but I ended up uh, reaching out to her again because I, I really wanted to, um, to to get her perspective, um, and uh, and I discovered that that uh, Mark was kind of her secret weapon. Here he was, her husband, uh, also a doctor, uh, and he was doing all the research with her, and he was he was able to to talk. So um, I not only uh, got to um, uh, uh, meet uh, Mark uh, and make a. a, a a new really good friend, but um, Mark's amazingly eloquent himself in, in talking about um, everything that's happened. And uh, so, you know, that, how was that? Well, that's awesome. That's awesome. That's how you guys met. And so Mark, what did you think about uh, Michael when he called you up and said, Hey, I, I, did you called him? Cause you were, you were trying to get the documentary, you know, trying to get information and, and people in the documentary to get this message across. Correct. Yeah. Well, um, it was fantastic to meet Mike, and as Mike said, um, you know my wife, Dr. Sam Bailey, is is really well known, and she's been speaking out since 2020. And um, when uh, Mike contacted her, it was a combination of things. As Mike says, she had some legal battles she had to deal with with the authorities here in New Zealand, 
she had a lot of other work going on and Mike was just like oh we've really got to get this information out and Sam just said to him well she said do you know my husband Mark he's a doctor he knows all the stuff he just doesn't usually come on the camera and uh well Mike said well yeah let, let me have a chat with him and uh mm-hmm. I think uh Mike's impression was I wasn't quite as pretty as Sam but uh he thought uh at least I can talk about this stuff and uh he, he just got me on the camera and I think um he the first chat we had he just interviewed me for like two hours continuously and uh we just uh hit it off from there so but yeah I mean as Mike says um you know Sam's been trying to get the message out since 2020 we both realized in late 2019 early 2020 there was something majorly wrong with the information we were receiving Mm -hmm. so we started going through the WHO reports we started going through the original studies coming out of China claiming that there was this new pathogen. We started investigating the PCR. We started um, investigating how the protocols for the PCR, which was uh, taken up by the WHO in January 2020 and then promoted around the world. We looked into all the details with regards to that. And by early 2020, we'd come to the conclusion that this narrative was nothing like what we were being told. Now, at that stage, I'd actually been out of the medical system for six years because I had practiced for 16 years up until 2016. But, so you were a licensed uh, MD, seeing patients on a daily basis. And yeah, even before uh, COVID, you, you left the industry. Why'd you do that? Um, I always had this uneasy relationship with the medical system. And even during medical school, I started reading alternative material, getting into the terrain theory stuff. Um, and yeah, just the whole time, I just felt like a lot of my colleagues saw medicine as this really powerful top shelf form of healthcare. And I just didn't see that. And and mainly because of the uh, results I was seeing the patients we were dealing with was that we didn't really cure many people. Um, we had the occasional success where the medical system is amazing particularly in acute and emergency care. Medicine can be quite remarkable. But with any chronic condition, I was really unsatisfied with our treatment pathways, which were largely pharmaceutical-based, often surgically-based as well. And so even when I graduated in 1999, I was really sitting on the fence a wee bit about continuing. I, I had a respite for about five years where I was a professional athlete. I did duathlon and traveled around the world as a pro athlete. And it was, it was a really interesting time because I learned how to become incredibly healthy, got into peak physical condition, was one of the, the best athletes in the world at that time. And then I was still working a couple of days a week and it was this incredible dichotomy of being in tip-top physical condition in my twenties and then going to work and working in hospitals, looking at treatments and pharmaceuticals, which there were no way, there was no way I'd put them in my body, um, even if I was sick. And uh, it was, it got more and more difficult um, as the years went by to be a part of that. Eventually I got into musculoskeletal medicine, which is um, in the U S I think it's called physiatry. Um, So it's very much a conservative based um, system of trying to help people with pain and musculoskeletal dysfunction. 
But even within that paradigm, I still found it really hard to work within the system. And I did clash with a lot of people um, within the system about what they were doing with patients. And by 2016, I just decided I, I didn't want to be a part of it anymore. So left clinical practice and um, I thought I was out of medicine for good. But then in late 2019, when this whole COVID thing started up, I couldn't stand by anymore. And because Sam had got involved with it, with the YouTube channel and starting to speak out, um, the two of us just became full-time working on the entire COVID science and putting out material we, we thought that the um, public actually needed to see. And, and you said Sam's channel had like 300,000 subscribers just on the YouTube channel and then they started uh, censoring it and blocking it, taking her post down, right? Yeah, well, she's still got um, over 300,000 subscribers, but um, I mean, she's had so many videos taken down. She's had millions of views scrapped. So I think in 2020, she was able to go under the radar a little bit. And we were very careful with the, uh, just, just the exact phrasing of what she was saying. We'd just put a whole lot of questions out there with regards to the PCR, with face masks, social distancing, with regards to this issue of, isolation of the virus, uh, sometimes without overtly saying things, but most of the audience could understand what she was trying to communicate to them, that, you know, there was quite a big fraud going on. And essentially, I think for most of 2020, she actually flew under the radar and rapidly got up to about 200,000 subscribers. And some of her videos would hit a million views uh, on these particular topics like the PCR and face masks, etc. Uh, but by 2021, her name had certainly started triggering algorithms. And yeah, by 2021, there was not much she could post um, without it getting heavily censored. So yeah. she still has her YouTube channel, but um, she doesn't post anything uh, that will trigger the algorithms with regards to the censorship. And so nowadays, her Odyssey channel pretty much has all of the uncensored material. So yeah, we found that's a really good platform. And obviously with Odyssey, the other advantage is, is that any one of the public can download her videos and then re-upload them to any other platforms. So we've noticed that goes on and it's been quite amazing because she has um, people in Japan, um, in the Spanish speaking world as well, who often translate her videos and re-upload to other um, platforms with subtitles. So yeah, I mean, the message is still getting out there, but certainly not through any of the mainstream search engines or through YouTube anymore. Okay, cool. So, Mike, when you, I wanted to know, like, what prompted you to make this documentary, The Viral Delusion, first question. And then the second question is, what were you trying to accomplish with the people watching it? Um, so, you know, as, as I looked into... Um, these diff different viewpoints on what was going on, um, I discovered a journalist named David Crow, and he had been um, a medical science journalist uh, for basically since the, the early 90s and um, had uh, gotten to know this the dissident scientists who had spoken out about the, the fraud that was being perpetrated um, in the claim that HIV causes AIDS. And uh, an HIV, um, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's an extraordinary fraud. Um, so I was listening well, to 
Fauci's been at it yeah, for a long time. Fauci's been been around for a while. That was his, you know, that's how he came of age. That's how he got, you know, the big bucks uh, selling uh, selling the theory that HIV causes AIDS and that uh, and squashing any other voices out there whatsoever. Um, and uh, when when I discovered Crow and and could listen to you know hundreds of interviews that he had done with scientists over the years. Um, and and he, here he was saying that, um, uh, that here with all these doctors and scientists saying that uh, not only um, did HIV not cause AIDS, but um, there, there were serious, serious fundamental questions with the entire theory behind um, uh, that, that viruses cause disease. Um, and so I was like, wow, that's, that's, that's pretty mind blowing. Like, could that, is that, is that, is that true? Is, is, is disease not caused, you know, by viruses? And, and I already knew that the story of um, polio and smallpox had been, um, that, that, that a whole marketing uh, narrative had formed around those diseases that had no relationship at all to reality. Um, none whatsoever. Uh, there was all, there were all these claims that, um, you know, the, various jabs through history had had eradicated those diseases um, and it's just patently false if you know the history it's just it's obviously false um well one, so, one thing that i talk about a lot which is easy for people to look up is the measles as an example mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. so i think it, it, in the year 1900 like 14 out of 100,000 people were dying of the measles which is a lot it's a very high amount but by 1947 1945, 1947—98% of the measles was eradicated. The measles vaccine didn't hit the scene until 1963. Yeah. So there's a perfect example. And then when we peel the onion, why? What made measles and all these other infectious diseases go away? It was the working class, um, uh, women's working class movement. These labor movements. These women got pissed, and they were. It was basically slave labor, and they said we're tired of living like slaves. We're going to work where we could get hurt or die. Our children are in the workforce and they fought for the eight hour workday. They fought for getting the children out of the workforce, safer working environments, better pay. And they got it. And they also fought for getting the urine and the feces out of the streets and the dead horses and the cows out of the water supply. So they got the, the sanitation workers and the plumbers and built infrastructure. And it was that infrastructure that delivered the people in the inner cities from uh, and again, what is that? It's environment, right? Clean water, clean air, clean food. And then the genes express themselves in a healthy manner, that epigenetics term that we're hearing out there a lot from like Dr. Bruce Lipton. So there's another example right there. You, you got it, Tim. And it's not just measles. It's every single major disease in, that, that they claim was eradicated by, you know, the, the jab. Uh, you can see the charts are right there. Um, they're, they're easy enough to find. They're in our film. Um, and uh, every single one of them, uh, you can see the huge drop off in, in, in the number of cases before the jabs came along. And it's not, you know, there, there, there are scientific papers that have been published in major journals uh, laying this out clearly. But it just doesn't matter because if it's not part of the, 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 the medical industry's marketing uh echo chamber even most doctors won't hear it even most doctors will believe the the pure superstition that um that that that's being sold so um you know i already knew that when i discovered um i, I didn't know anything about aids because um aids 
you know, I grew up and I'm, I'm 46. You know, I was a teenager when, um, you know, when the AIDS scare happened, it was yeah. really scary. I remember scary. I was scared of it. I was like, God, I don't want to get that. Yeah. Man, freak me out. I'm like, what do I know? I'm just a kid just trying to go to college or whatever. I'm, <laughs> exactly. I don't want to get AIDS. That's scary <laughs> stuff. I mean, from what I was told. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, it's the way, I'm, the way, you know, my mom feels about COVID, you know, just terrifying brain shut, shuts down. Yep. You're not thinking about it. You're not investigating it. Um, you're not looking uh, where they, you know, where they don't want you to look. And so you only know what they want you to know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turns out uh, that the litany of, of scientists that were, that had spoken out about AIDS was just, I mean, it was just like the most impressive who's who of the scientific community. And uh, it's not picked up on mainstream. And if it's not mainstream, people don't, they just believe mainstream. Yeah. I mean, one, one of the, one of the stories that we tell in the, in the doc is, is, you know, the, 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 the nation's leading virologist, um, Peter. And for you listeners out there, I just learned something. The doc is short for the documentary. (laughs) So this is documentary insider lingo. We're teaching you today. Oh yeah. Throwing it down. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) well, Anyway, I mean, uh, look, there was this, there was this, this uh, virologist, and I have at this point, I have serious problems with anybody who calls himself a virologist. I mean, it's it's like these guys are like the 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 the, the priests, you know, inside the Catholic Church in in 1450, you know, talking about how many angels can fit on the on the head of a pin. I mean, it's not science; it's pseudoscience. And I'll I'll go to bat, and I'll and I'll I'm happy to debate anybody who disagrees. Um, but um, even within the system, uh, you know, the, the country's quote unquote leading virologist had spoken out and said, you know, there's just there's no way that HIV, uh, that, there, that there's a particle called HIV causing AIDS. There's no way. And uh, because he was so, you know, such a like a hot shot, you know, that he started to make some waves and, uh, you know, like like the like Good Morning America. I don't know if it was Good Morning America, a show like that wanted to have him on the air. And, 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 you know, air his views a little bit. Well, he got to New York City uh, to be on the show in the morning and like 20 minutes before he was going to get in the cab, he got a, a phone call from the show saying, I'm so sorry, uh, you know, Dr. Duisburg, we can't, we can't have you on the air. Uh, there's been a, you know, just a cancellation. And he was like, oh, okay. And so he just sat down in his hotel room and he turned on the TV and there was Fauci on that show that he had he was supposed to have been on so fauci had people that were following deuceberg to know when he might be on television so that he they could pull him and fauci could be there himself this is this is the 30 this is fauci 30 years ago mm-hmm. so we're talking about a, an operation that i think a, a media operation i think people probably don't have um, that was news to me i mean this is a really sophisticated operation that's going on yeah and the reality is if you want to get out of the matrix just turn off the television there you go (laughs) it's just it's just that simple like just turn it off and stop putting all that propaganda in your head and then you'll have a lot less fear you'll have uh better chemistry and you'll live longer and you'll be happier I mean, we really don't need it. I mean, you think every third commercial tells you what to eat. Where in nature does an animal need to be told what to eat? We're the only ones, seems to be. Every other third commercial is a pharmaceutical ad. And most people don't realize that 60 to 70% of all the revenue coming in for these um, television stations 
or the news organizations is from big pharma. So like they, they're not going to be able to go against them. They basically control them, right? They're puppets. It's all, it's all, you know, there used to be like 350 news organizations and now it's like four or five, like, you know what I mean? It's it. And then it's like all that information is decimated, uh, um, disseminated out through, um, uh, what is it? Uh, the, uh, my train of thought. I'll think about it. It's the Rothschilds own it. It's, um, you know, what's the, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? The, it's uh, Reuters. Uh, Reuters is one part uh, of it. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. So th- four, like days wire, ago, four days ago, I was going to put out a press release about the doc and um, just a standard press release, you know, Hey, this new documentary is out. It's really fascinating. We, we, uh, we speak to doctors and scientists who lay, you know, lay bare the pseudoscience that is uh, the claim for uh, of SARS-CoV-2. Right. Put put out put out the press release. Ten minutes after I send out the press release, I get a I get a call from the from the agency, the press release agency, and there's we're so sorry, but uh, PR Newswire will not release your press release. So it was supposed to go out to a hundred thousand journalists. This is like a standard thing that happens. Oh, that was Associated Press. That's it. Reuters and oh, yeah. Associated Press. There we go. But but you know somebody at PR Newswire in ten minutes or less was able to decide that 100,000 journalists could not decide for themselves whether to print or run a story about my documentary, right? Just one person over at PR Newswire. That's another really good reason, guys, that are listening to watch this documentary and and then pass it on to your friends and stuff like that. Because, you know, a lot of people are, well, we're going to have to take a quick, let's just do this. We'll take a quick break. We get back, we'll get into this. And I have a lot of questions for you guys. And I'm sure that uh, the listeners are going to want to get these answers. So we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. The average person today is carrying around six to 12 pounds of impacted fecal material and mucoid plaque in the small and large intestine. That's gross, but worse, it's super unhealthy. That is why we created gut detox formula. This ancient 1,000-year-old formula from India gently micro-cleanses the intestines, removing all of that funk and gunk and junk that is destroying your health while leaving your good bacteria behind, which is part of your immune system. And there is no diarrhea like most gut detox products, and it's made with the same chemical-free body promise, no stimulants, 100% nature, and always made in the USA. Get yours today at chemicalfreebody.com. What's up, Health Heroes? Tim James here. I'm back. Um, got Dr. Michael Bailey in the house and Michael Wallach, who is the uh, producer for the documentary, uh, The Viral Delusion and theviraldelusion.com. Oh, sorry, and Tim. We love dogs. We love Tim, it's, dogs. We Tim, love those dogs. <laughs> sorry, Tim. It's, it's Mark. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. Did I say it wrong? Oh, Mark. Dr. Yeah, yeah, Mark you're getting Bailey our names around the wrong way. And, and Michael Wallach. Yeah. Sorry. Thanks for correcting me. I got. You put two, two of you on here, and that's that's a little hard for the redneck to figure out. We, we'll get through it. Thanks for correcting me. Okay, so we were talking about, like, um, you know, how corrupt, like, the news, news organizations and stuff like that is. I mean, it's just they're really not serving humanity at all. It's all a controlled thing. Just stop listening to it. Stop watching it um, is, would be my solution. I, I just don't watch this stuff anymore because it's like, what benefit am I going to get out of it except for fear? You know, you want to get, you want to get, you want to feel bad, turn on the local news and they'll tell you who's shooting everybody and killing everybody and raping and, 
and it'll make you feel really bad. And then they might tell one little story about like a dog or a cat that got saved out of the tree. It's some little feel good thing. But um, other than that, I think it's a detriment to our society. It's um, they're, they're just basically uh, a marketing part of a marketing arm. That's what the, that's what news organizations are. Now they're just a marketing arm. They use fear as an approach. So, all right, guys, let's get into this, this documentary. And um, to kind of set the tone, um, I was showing uh, Michael earlier, um, and I'll share screen really quick, um, just as an example. A lot of people don't know this. What you guys are looking at right here, for those oh, listening, you can't see this. We're looking at Pfizer's total revenue from 2006 to 2021. Okay. Now, as you guys can see, back in 2011, the revenue was $65 billion. And by 2010, or excuse me, 2020, the revenue had dropped down to 41 billion. So it was down over $20 billion. And what most people out there, the working class people don't know because this isn't on media, is that single molecule drug manufacturers were burning to the ground. They were going out of business. The research and development costs were up um, and they weren't really to spit out a lot of these uh, new drugs because they just weren't finding anything that was working, right? Now, just to give a little background here, single molecule drugs, when they find something they think is going to work, they patent it, which is a 20-year process. You have a 20-year patent life, but it takes them $5 billion and on average 13 years to get from start to finish so they can actually start selling the drug to the public. You know, you got all that leading up to it, animal testing, um, and then um, you've got phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials. It takes a long time, a lot of money. Then they've only got seven years left to sell it. Well, a lot of their drugs were running out of patent and they couldn't come up with a new one. So they were going out of business. But what was growing was the vaccine side of the industry. It was growing at 17% a year. It's just all green arrows heading up. And so if you look at 2021, what happened? Well, Pfizer started getting into vaccines and you look, they've done over $81 billion in sales. So what we've equated this to is that operation warp speed courtesy of uh, Donald Trump was the big pharma bailout. It was a big pharma bailout. And if you follow the money, you can always see it, right? You can see it right there, just like Obama bailed out the banks. So anyway, I just wanted to share that. And that's what we're dealing with here. Like, it's, it's kind of crazy that somebody like Michael has to go to the extent he does and have to do the deep research, put out a documentary, and then like fight tooth and nail just to get people to watch the truth. When, isn't that what we want? I mean, aren't, aren't you tired of being lied to? Don't you want the truth? I mean, so everybody, most of our, our listeners listening to, they do. They want the truth. And they and hopefully they'll watch this documentary and get it out to a lot of folks. So why don't we talk about, first off, the is, is there anything about the drug companies that you guys want to share first before I go into the first question? Yeah, well, Tim, I think you, um, you hit the nail on the head with those charts there. And you'd probably be interested to know that in 2007, um, the financial firm PricewaterhouseCoopers put out a, a report for the pharmaceutical industry, warning them exactly what you've just been saying, that the markets are drying up with regards to a lot of these drug products. And interestingly, a large part of that 2007 report suggested that the future was vaccines. And that uh, not only that, but that the pharmaceutical industry needed to realize that increasingly uh, decisions with regards to pharmaceutical utilization was going to come from the governments, basically, rather than from the individual consumers. So they'd realized that there was going to be these potential markets for mass purchasing of vaccines at the government level. 
And you know, what have we seen since uh, early 2021 is exactly that. And interestingly, yeah, we're, when, we're our tax dollars are buying these damn things. Yeah. We, I didn't sign up for it, but I got to pay for it. And then they don't even work. It's just, it's really frustrating. Exactly. And in, in 2007, it was interesting because the year that picked for this to all come to fruition was 2020. So, you know, it was almost like this whole thing was uh, planned that they would need to get these new revenue streams kicking in by around 2020, um, which is exactly what's happened. So, yeah, it's it's definitely um, it's really disturbing. And um, in the documentary, uh, Mike also managed to speak to, uh, you know, my wife, Sam, co-authored Virus Mania, which is one of the best selling books about attacking germ theory and the whole uh, school of virology, basically. And so Mike managed to interview her co-authors, uh, Torsten Engelbrecht, Klaus Conline and Stefano Scoglio. And a, a lot of virus mania is actually dedicated to just what you've been talking about, this model that the pharmaceutical companies basically invent uh, with a fear-based narrative that they take to the public to rack up demand for products, which basically, if it was left to the free market, nobody would be choosing to buy these products uh, or you know, get uh, injected with them. But because of uh, the way that the industry has been manipulated over the last couple of decades, and they've had a couple of attempts at launching these worldwide alleged pandemics previously with swine flu, uh, avian flu, SARS-1. We've all seen that over the last couple of decades, but nothing uh, got to the degree of what we've seen with COVID-19. And it's almost like the game was being honed over the last 20 years to lead to what we've seen in the last two years. And uh, yeah, as I say, that's basically virus mania outlines the exact playbook, which they've been using for the past two years. Well, and keep in mind too, guys, that they're uh, right now they're making like $65,000 a minute. They're actually making a thousand dollars, basically a second um, pushing this stuff. So they went from, you know, going out of business to, you know, record profits. And what's what's thanks to the Kennedys and the 1986 Vaccine Act, you can't sue a vaccine manufacturer or you you can sue a drug manufacturer. So there's a there's a big distinction there. What a great business model to get into where you have a government making these billion dollar purchases and then decimate, you know, with our tax dollars. Nobody I, I didn't approve of this. OK, and they're using my tax dollars to do it. Um, so you got this built in huge uh, purchaser. Um, and then if anybody does get hurt, you can't sue them. You know, it's like you, you, you and Mark, you, you go down and your wife's like, Hey, we need a new car. And it's like, okay, you go buy a new car and you drive down there and she's, your wife drives off the lot. You're following her, the car explodes and she dies. You can't sue the car manufacturer because they got some laws passed that say if their engines blow up that you can't sue them and us working class citizens, we're okay with that. That's that's where we're at with the vaccines. You know, it's just like, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense at all. And if you guys look in the research and look that up, they, they basically forced a Reagan to sign that thing in because they said, look, yeah, some people, they were actually vaccine manufacturing of Mark. You, you can probably speak to this. They were going out of business in the, in the eighties because of, they were getting sued too much because of people were dying and getting maimed and hurt from their things. But what happened was they said, look, certain amount of people are going to get hurt but it's for the greater good. We're saving and helping all these millions and for the small percentage, but we're, we can't, you need to protect us. 
Otherwise, it's going to be on your head, Mr. Reagan, uh, on why the whole you know country's health declines. And they, because you know the dude Reagan wasn't like a health expert; he didn't know. So these people are like, they just go along with whatever they're told. I don't know if he was corrupt or not, but whatever. Um, let's just assume he was a good guy, and he goes along with it, and they sign that act in. They just throw it into a bill with a bunch of other crap, and then here we are. Now you have a a a, a wonderful business model that they can you know make tons of profit and you can't sue them even if you hurt them so what do you guys you want to talk about that a little bit yeah i mean i think that one of the things that really um you know that really got me was when people learn about uh vaccines um most people become aware pretty quickly that they're not safe right that that's sort of like that's even common knowledge among the like pro vaccine like cult worshipers but um what i discovered uh in my research, this was like going back like 10 years now of research, was that they're, they're also not effective. The, 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 the whole idea that, the, that these things had anything to do with the eradication of disease is a myth. It is 100% a myth. So, you know, I mean, there, there are just so many examples from history um, where, that's, where that's just wildly clear. So, you know, one would, would be like smallpox, which was the first you know, uh, big disease where, where, where you know, uh, vaccines were rolled out on a large scale. And um, they're, they're just, you know, you could see that you could see if you follow it over time in, you know, in London and you see the rates of smallpox and the uh, and the vaccination rates, um, you know, it, they're not connected. I mean, the vaccination rate will go up to, you know, almost 100 percent and uh, you'll see a huge smallpox epidemic right after that. And then the vaccination rate will fall and you'll see smallpox go down. Or you could take uh, the town of, um, I never know how to pronounce it, um, uh, Leicester, I think. And um, th there was a, a mom who had her baby uh, hurt um, from, from one of these, you know, unbelievably, you know, dangerous experimental injections. This is in the 1800s. And she was so upset, she started organizing the people in Leicester saying, hey, what are we doing here? This, this is total madness. And so the whole city of Leicester got together and said, we don't want these things. And all the rest of England said, you're crazy. You're all going to die of smallpox. There's going to be you know, an, a, a horrible outbreak. And what happened? The smallpox rates went down in Leicester when they continued to rise in the rest of England. So it, there's the, the case, and we, we bring up the, the, the Dr. Charles Crichton uh, who in the late uh, 1890s was asked by Encyclopedia Britannica to write the, um, the, the, you know, the entry for smallpox vaccination, right? And, uh, and so he said, okay. And he was a pretty traditional doctor at that time. He was, you know, very, you know, revered doctor. It was, they came to him to write the, you know, Britannica entry. So he sat down, he started doing the research and, and, he, and he was so amazed that it was, it was obvious that that you know vaccinations had nothing to do with the eradication of smallpox. That he wrote his entry saying, oh, "Smallpox vaccination—it's a myth, you know. That has, you know, it, it's a commonly accepted myth that hopefully will go away uh, in uh, you know as as the medical industry becomes wiser." But what happened instead? Encyclopedia Britannica deleted his entry, and then he was basically you know uh, pushed out of. Um, out of his, you know, uh, medical position. So we're he didn't do what he was told. 
Yeah, and exactly. Uh, you know, so we're talking about a, a, a game that's been going on for over 100 years um, that's very central to the medical industry's power, uh, to the pharmaceutical industry's power. Um, it's, this is not a new game, but um, we're, you know, we're seeing like a new phase of that game mm -hmm. uh, where the institutional power is bigger because we have more We've given money. them more money longer. They you know, have more time to plan. They have system scientists. You know, when I was a kid, you were, you guys were growing up. I, I only got like, I don't remember, three, four, five shots. And now I think the schedule's like by the time a kid's 18, they've had like 72 or something like that. Maybe you guys could. So yeah, to well, me, it's this like, is, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is um, like Mike says, this is part of the vaccine mythology because, yeah, that's a great observation you've made is that when we were kids, there were very few vaccines on the childhood schedule and then suddenly by the 1990s um you know there was so many diseases they were telling people that oh my goodness your child will run the gauntlet if they're not vaccinated against this particular disease but just 10 years earlier we weren't vaccinating against those diseases and most of them had disappeared and you, you hit on that earlier by the 1980s that a lot of the public was getting suspicious about the need for vaccines because they'd witnessed that huge decline in morbidity and mortality over the last century to the point where most people thought that there doesn't seem to be any benefit whatsoever in taking your kids in to get jabbed. But then the 80s and 90s were the beginnings of this uh, creation of you know what, what you'd call as vaccine mythology, basically. I was trained in the medical system in the 1990s and it was very, very heavy in terms of the propaganda we were given, basically saying that, look, you guys, you don't even need to investigate this stuff. It's all established science. Questioning this kind of stuff is just completely unnecessary and um, it's going to be to the detriment of the entire population. And as you say, we now live in an era where they're telling us to give our kids, you know, vaccines for yeah, I think in the US, you guys are probably the world record holders. They're up to something like 16 different diseases or something that um, have been put on the childhood schedule. And, and it's absolutely, absolutely ridiculous because, you know, there's plenty of kids around today well, and teenagers and even some adults who have never had a single vaccine in their life and they are perfectly healthy. I've got friends who are in their 30s have never had one vaccine in their entire life, not one. And, you know, they've been told that they're running the gauntlet. They've traveled through the third world, they've been to Africa, South America, everywhere, and, uh, and have never, ever been sick. And they are classic examples of people who take care of their health and do not get these so-called contagious diseases. But, yeah, the mythology that they propagate is that if you don't get um, these vaccines, you, um, you know, your child is going to get incredibly sick and die. But like um, we say, if you start actually researching this stuff for yourself and you look at the official figures, um, the CDC, for instance, you can just look up their official figures and look up a particular disease and they'll say in this year, X number of children died of this disease. And you go, OK, I'll, I'll have a look. And then you look it up and you find that, well, out of the six kids that died, um, four of them were actually fully vaccinated anyway, so that didn't seem to work. And the other two had like some terrible underlying condition like leukemia or a, a congenital uh, birth defect. So 
to to blame it on some contagious disease is, is completely erroneous because for the average child who is uh, you know reasonably healthy, there's, there's simply no risk of uh, of death like they tell you from these particular conditions. Yeah, you know, I actually had um, I don't, you guys had did you guys have Dr. Paul Thomas in the documentary? I haven't finished watching all of it yet. No, no, we didn't. We didn't get to. So Dr. Thomas, he's actually here local. He's a he's like a 30 year family uh, pediatrician, and he's got one of the largest pediatrician clinics in the United States with over 10,000 kids. Mm. And um, and at his clinic, his doctors and nurses and practitioners actually did something quite remarkable. They actually informed the parents of all the risks and benefits of vaccination. Like true informed consent. They actually did it like they were supposed to. And um, after this thorough explanation, the majority of the parents decided to opt out of vaccines. Um, this, what happened, created a very large patient pool for the children that were unvaccinated along with a pool of vaccinated children. Because he said, we had people come in and they said, um, they give conform, inconform consent. And some people still said, I want to do whatever the CDC recommends. I want to do the full thing. And they said, okay. And they gave the, they gave the, they gave the jabs. They just did. They just did their job, right? They just did exactly what the clients wanted. And what happened was um, after seeing higher than normal number of autism cases in his practice, he started digging and into the clinical research and found the vaccines are really not that great for children. Then he did clinical research on all of his children in the practice and published the data. Um, that data showed that the unvaccinated kids were much healthier than the vaccinated kids. Like, a lot of the vaccinated kids had all these autoimmune issues and, you know, th no, ears, nose and throat infections were much higher. They were just they were sicker. They were getting colds and flus all the time. Um, and for his breakthrough work, the medical board stripped him of his medical license for no reason. And then he had to fight in court to get it reinstated. Um, yet his legal battle still goes on today. So, you know, it's just there's it's there's so much common sense here. And the reality is, is like. Where, what other animal or creature in nature um, takes a pill when they get sick? It just doesn't happen. Like if a horse gets sick, it'll just go around and eat different herbs and stuff. It naturally knows where to go in nature. And, we, and, and if you think that these things are working, like getting jabbed is going to work for you and work for your kids, then why are, why, if, they're, if they're so damn good, then why are human beings, especially our children, the sickest that human beings have ever been in the history of humanity? Why are we so sick? If this stuff works so well, if it works so well, then why are we so sick? Why are 30, 38% of children being born obese? Um, children are born. I mean, have you guys seen the umbilical cord studies where they show that every single child being born today, they test the umbilical cord blood. They're finding 180 chemicals that cause cancer, 212 chemicals that cause developmental and brain disorders. Maybe this is the problem. Maybe it's the environment. Maybe it's the, the chemicals and the toxin and the pollution that we're breathing, drinking, wearing, putting on ourselves, makeup, shampoos, toothpaste, all this type of stuff. What do you guys think about that? <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more, man. Well, so here, so here's the mind blowing thing that really launched me into making the doc is when I, when I heard that and I, and I, when I, when I realized that exact revelation that, that, you know, you've been talking about for decades, right. Or for a long time. Um, and, and, Cause when I realized that it's, it's obviously the environment, it's, obviously the environment that is making people sick and has been all along whether you look at just like your, with your wife with the mold 
It's like with my wife with the mold, exactly. Or, you know, when I came down with a crazy, crazy uh, skin condition when I was living in Mexico and the doctor said, you know, I went to a sort of a, a, you know, orthodox mainstream, you know, Western doctor and he was totally confused and he couldn't figure out what the hell it was. And he had me on a steroid drip and sleeping in the hospital. But nothing got me better. I finally went back and uh, I, I, uh, I talked to this uh, talked to this lady who helped me look at who helped me look after our um, our, our one year old uh, uh, local uh, Mayan lady, and she was like, "Oh, you you touched the uh, Chechen tree. Look at you! You touched the Chechen tree. Just go go back to the Chechen tree that you touched, and you'll see that right next to it grows another tree called a chukka tree. Take the bark and um, and you'll uh, and boil the bark and put it on your skin. Well, I did that, and I was better." from a full body rash that the hospital couldn't fix in a week, I was better in, a, in an hour, you know? <laughs> like, nature. It's, nature, it's amazing. <laughs> well, anyway, when I realized that, um, you know, this is we're, what's making us sick and what has made us sick for a very long time is, is our environments, not a mythical virus. Um, and I was listening to David Crow talk to the scientists who were saying, hey, the, the concept, our modern idea of a virus is, it's, it's a theoretical construct. It doesn't actually exist in nature. That, that was mind blowing to me. And so then I started looking uh, through all the scientific experiments that have been done to claim that there are actually these things called viruses floating around like little demons, like little UFO ships, like little that, that, that are making us sick. It's not the environment, it's not your food, it's not the soil, it's not the air, right? It's not, it, it's not how you treat your body. It's actually these like little invisible things. When I realized that that science was actually pseudoscience and that people like Mark, good doctors like Mark and Sam and many other doctors had actually been writing about it and talking about it for years. That I, I, that, I, I was like, I got to get that out. I got to get this story out. People have got to be able to see that laid out for themselves perfectly clearly. Because to me, that's just kind of like, boom, wow, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah, makes total sense. Awesome. Let's do this, guys. We'll take one more quick break. Then we get back. I want to get... I um. I got a couple more questions for you guys. I want to talk about germs versus toxins. I want to talk about the PCR, um, maybe a little bit about masks. So we'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Turmeric has been used for thousands of years all across India and Southeast Asia and is one of the best anti-inflammatory compounds on Earth. Now you can get these incredible benefits with the new chemical-free body turmeric 100 liquid drops. This ethically sourced breakthrough solution absorbs over 100 times better than regular turmeric products, eliminating the need to add black pepper. Turmeric 100 helps against inflammation and pain and is made with the same chemical-free body promise. No stimulants, 100% natural, and always made in the USA. Get yours today at chemicalfreebody.com. What's up, Health Heroes? Tim James here. I'm back with another exciting episode with Michael Wallach, the creator of the ViralDelusion.com documentary. And he also brought on, uh, as a bonus gift, uh, Dr. Mark Bailey, um, who was actually in the documentary, um, so we could have the doc's uh, perspective. So I really appreciate both of you guys being on your time today, uh, share, sharing with our listeners. 
Um, so we, I want to talk about um, uh, like the germ versus we were just, we were talking about the environment, right? And how, you know, it's, it's the environment that it dictates how the genes express themselves. Um, so let's just finish on this germ versus environment theory. Maybe Dr. Bailey can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, well, certainly, um, I mean, germ theory is just that. It, it was a theory that was put forward in, mainly in the late 1800s, you know, suggesting that there was diseases were caused by a particular microbe and there would be a particular treatment for that microbe, you know, whether it be an antibiotic or later on the development of vaccines for so-called prevention. But the, the problem is, is like Mike was alluding to earlier, if you actually look back at the studies that uh, were supposedly the evidence for germ theory, um, they're very, very poorly designed. Most of them have no control experiments. And certainly from the perspective of um, researchers like Sam and I, we've gone back right to the, you know, to the 1800s, basically looking at these papers and not one of them has impressed us that it has demonstrated the concept of microbes being contagious and passing from person to person. And I think what's happened is there's been a, a mistake with associations. So where we see disease, say in a person, we will also see a proliferation of certain types of bacteria or, or fungi. And then people have said, well, they're the cause of what's happened here. But the evidence we've seen doesn't point to the microbe suddenly jumping out of the environment onto a person and making them sick. There has to be something that happens first. And there has to be what we call the terrain, basically, or the environment of, of the person. So for instance, say you, we're talking about what the medical system would call a chest infection. They think that you inhale the bug, the bug starts to proliferate in your lungs and produce all this mucus and then you get sick and run down and all this kind of stuff. Whereas from what we can see, the evidence suggests that there's some sort of insult to the body. So that could be a physical one, say breathing in air that's too cold for your lungs, which causes physical damage to the lung tissue. There could be a toxic insult, like you've ingested something from your water or your food and your body's then trying to get rid of it. And what it results in is a reaction in the tissue uh, where the body tries to get rid of whatever it's trying to get rid of. And if, if it's through the lungs, that may involve the production of a whole lot of mucus from the dead tissue breakdown. And with that, we get microbes, bacteria start to proliferate, but they're just doing what they do, which is gobble up dead and dying tissue mm -hmm. and uh, metabolize that so that life can go on on our planet. But the medical system treats that as though the bugs have attacked the person and throws in things like antibiotics and, and other aggressive treatments when uh, they haven't actually dealt with the underlying condition. And, and this extends to virtually any condition you can think of, whether it's um, so-called gastroenteritis um, with what they call an infectious microbe or any of these other conditions. But when you go back to the experiments and say, do they actually demonstrate that a healthy person or a healthy animal uh, comes into contact with these bugs? Do, do they actually make them sick? And you'll find that over and over again, there is just not the evidence um, that this is the case. And with viruses, it's even worse because the concept of a virus, again, is completely theoretical. So, you know, you've got a textbook being written saying that there's this infectious particle 
that's invading the cells and replicating and then passing on to to other host cells is just a complete theory basically we, we don't have physical uh science that demonstrates that this is what goes on we have all these indirect things like we have clusters of people getting sick we have people sneezing uh you know we have what appears to be something passing around but in fact when you look at the clinical studies and try and search for the physical evidence of these particles or demonstrate that these things that they're calling viruses have any ability to infect or make people sick the, the evidence is, is just not there and it's often obfuscated in a whole lot of high-tech wizardry like uh the PCR, for instance, or what they might say is a viral isolation uh, culture study, or what they might call viral genomics, where they say this is the gene genome of the virus. Um, but all of it, they can get these results without actually having a virus. And, and that's what's incredible. And I think um, Mike found that really interesting, talking to all of us, uh, the journalists, scientists, and doctors who are involved in this sort of work is just showing that for everything that they present as evidence of contagion or viruses, there's a perfectly logical explanation as to why that's not the case. And you can, you can demonstrate it just walking through their own science um, from A to Z. Okay. So I had a question. This is a really important question. I think a lot of listeners might have this question too, which is like, I, I was kind of on your guys' path ahead of time. I was almost like, I don't even think there's a COVID virus. I'm like, I don't even think it really exists because it's when you see stuff like, you know, there used to be, let's say, 40 to 60,000, um, you know, flu cases a year and pneumonia and stuff like this. And all of a sudden those cases just are disappeared. They're gone. And now everything's COVID, you know. So for me, I was like thinking that the full spectrum, maybe it doesn't exist. But what has happened is, is because I've personally coached people and I'm on the pulse of the working class and the public and. I hear the stories and I'm, this is what I do for a living, right? Everybody I'm talking to is giving me information. I'm kind of like, I can, I, I kind of have like a little, it's like a constant test going on. I kind of just plugged in, you know what I mean? And what I have noticed is that a lot of people, real people that I know are not lying to me are having these symptoms that were, were different. Like they would have, you know, the loss of taste and the loss of smell that would last. Well, this is kind of a new thing as far as what I've seen. So what, what is it? Was it the, was it the spike proteins that were created from the vaccinations that caused this, or is there, is there really a virus out there? I mean, how do you, how do you explain this new like loss of taste and smell? And, and, you know, some people, it's just tough because the way they diagnosed, I don't know what people are really dying of. We just don't know what they're dying of, but what, how do you address that? What causes the loss of taste and smell? It's been different. Well, I think, you know, firstly, Tim, if you look at the definition of COVID-19, it's simply defined by the PCR process and nothing else. And this was apparent by 2020 that there were no specific symptoms, no specific signs. There were no confirmatory investigations. There was simply the PCR. And to this day, whether it's the WHO or the CDC or any of the health institutions around the world, basically a confirmed case is simply the result of the PCR. So um, I think we have to be careful about what um, a COVID-19 case actually is, because with regards to things like the loss of taste and, and smell, 
I think that has been trumped up as something new. And um, there was a German virologist way back in 2020 who suggested that that was a special feature. But to be honest, I mean, that's a very common symptom with regards to colds and flus. Yeah, I remember I think, when I used to get colds, I lose my taste. I couldn't taste nothing. Yeah. And I think too, we there's a whole mass effect that goes on in a population. If you start telling people to look out for something, suddenly they start seeing it. Mm. Um, Sam Great actually made- activator kicks in. Yeah, yeah. Sam's actually got a really good video if people want to see it called How to Create an Epidemic. And it looks at other um, historical events that have happened, um, sometimes medical, sometimes otherwise, where people honestly think something new is happening. And nothing new was happening at all. It was just that the media were reporting on it and everybody started talking about it. And it became the most important thing was to talk about this new thing. And everyone was convinced that these various events were happening. So I think um, COVID is another example of that where people have been told, yeah, you get this really terrible sore throat or yeah, you get just wiped out for a week or you lose your smell for two weeks, all this kind of stuff. But when in fact they are just describing generic kind of cold and flu symptoms, mm -hmm. I mean, there may always be um, new symptoms that appear in a population and, and we can certainly um, investigate that, but the cause is not based on a single virus that's passing around as, as the narrative has gone. Yeah. Well, the human yeah. mind is so powerful too, because there's like, there's stories over and over again, like an old lady's in the hospital and she hears docs talking like, yeah, she's got two days to live or something. And then two days later she dies. Um, I had my own personal experience. My buddy and I, when we were in um, playing, uh, uh, we were in the World Series when we were 15 in Saint, uh, where we were at Springfield, Missouri. Never been back there before. And they've got things called fireflies, you know, which little kids, there's bugs that fly around, they light up. And they also have these things called chiggers. There's these like little teeny, almost no seams or little black things, they bite you. And um, we went out and firefly in, in early in the evening and we came back and the host mom was like, okay, well, that was good you guys have them. But now you have chiggers all over your legs. You're going to need to go wash those off. Just why don't you guys hop in the pool? And we were like, what are chiggers? She's like, oh, there's little things. They just bite the crap out of you. My friend, me and Neil, we didn't even notice that we were getting bit by him at all. I, I didn't feel him. He didn't feel him. But when she told us that, and then all of a sudden he looked down, he's like, oh, my God. Yeah, I see him. Oh, my God. They're biting me. They're biting me. And then he just like freaked out. And then we ran and jumped in the pool and stuff. But I was like, what are you talking about? They're not. So like the mind, man, I, I swear to God, because he didn't say nothing about it before she said something. And then all of a sudden, wow, now it was so, so okay. So I'm, I'm open-minded to that. I get that. Yeah, but, but I think not just the mind. I mean, I want to, I want to like really like respect what, if, if, if you don't mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Uh, what, you know, what people say, because, um, you know, I think the, the most, the absolute most important thing that I hope people take away from like our conversations from, from the film, um, is that when you get sick or when other, when people, you know, and love get sick, um, you can't just take the, 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 the medical marketing story uh, for granted and just call it a day. Um, it's, it's to put that aside and just, just really, really, really investigate why might you have gotten sick. And, and that's what we're missing as like consumers of health. Uh, and, and that's what we're missing as a society, uh, from our media, from our scientific institutions. Uh, we're not looking at all the different reasons why we might get sick. So take like loss of, of, of 
uh, smell and taste. Um, you know, well, and first of all, that's not an official uh, COVID symptom from, from the WHO, right? They couldn't have it as an official COVID symptom because it would have limited the number of COVID cases to be mm. too small to, to declare a pandemic, right? So it's not actually, like their, their version, it, it, that, it's not. It's just, it's the, their symptomology for COVID is the flu, okay? That, because that's really widespread. You can, doctors can apply that to everybody, right? But yeah. we are, we're, you're talking to people who've lost their you know, sense of taste and smell. Well, there's, there's actually a lot of reasons why that could happen. There, there are tons of pharmaceutical drugs that will, that will have that as a side effect, right? Mm -hmm. So there are- Maybe um, it's 5G. Maybe it's just the total breakdown well, of the human frame. We're just getting to a, I mean, we're literally breaking down as a society. Like I said, we're de-evolving as a species right now. So yeah, absolutely. There's people tons have been getting sicker and sicker. Colds are lasting longer and longer and, and than they did when, you know, a healthy person gets a cold. They might not even notice they have it or a day or two, a couple of sniffles and cough and they're fine. And, you know, now it's like a week in bed, two weeks in bed, three weeks. And then it comes back two weeks later and you got something else. And it's, it's because your body's weak. Where was Fauci and our government, if they really care about us, how come they're not talking 24 seven about, hey, let's America, let's we need to lose some weight. We need to eat healthier foods. We need fresh food. We need to boost the immune system. If they put all the effort and energy into that rather than pushing, uh, you know, a one size fits all medicine approach. Um, we all know we'd we'd be much healthier, but there's no money in that. That's the problem. There's a 500 page book called The Invisible Rainbow, which which looks at the increase uh, of disease along with um, electrification and uh, EMF radiation over the last hundred years. How good it, you know, he's looking at small, tiny islands in World War One where they're putting up the first radar and how the people on these tiny islands were getting sick. Well, we're not talking about tiny islands with like a single radar. We are drenched in EMFs these days. Yeah. You know? what, what was getting rolled out while everybody else was told to isolate and shut down, 5G was considered essential. And then there was a massive 5G rollout in 2019, 2020, 2020 it started happening. Uh, yeah, but you know, we can't ask any of these, if, if everybody thinks, oh, there's just a virus and uh, we, you know, we got to fight it with, uh, you know, Fauci's going to fight it for me. He's going to give me like this special medicine, the special injection. Then nobody's looking at what, you know, what happens when we're taking all these toxic drugs? What happens when our air is thick with all sorts of new chemicals that they use to break down fracked gasoline? Uh, when, you know, there's EMFs, like, you, you know, like, Sometimes, you know, you go, I live in the woods, you know, like it's, it's pretty chill where I am, but sometimes I go into cities and I check my Wi-Fi, and there's like 75 different, you know, Wi-Fi networks yeah. that I can connect to or something like that. Like you'd have to be pretty crazy to think that that has no impact whatsoever on the human body. I remember yeah. a doctor told me that when they put the cell phone towers up on the buildings in New York, it was like instant 17 to 18% increase in breast cancer for women, just like yeah. overnight. So yeah, that stuff affects us where I think a lot of our, our listeners especially know this, um, which is good. Um, can you guys, let's just recap on the PCR test really quick. Um, what was the gentleman's name that invented it? What was the purpose of the PCR test? What was it used for, and then how was it misused? Yeah, well, the inventor was um, Carrie Mullis, and um, who unfortunately um, passed away in 2019, just before this whole COVID thing got started. But I mean, essentially, the 
PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction, and it's an amplification technique. The problem with genetic material, whether it's RNA or DNA, is that it's present in such minute quantities that our usual detection techniques are not going to work. It's not like taking a blood test and looking at the red blood cells or a protein like albumin, where you've got so much of it, you know, you can just kind of directly uh, analyze it. So with genetic material, because it's present in such tiny, tiny little quantities, um, Malus came up with this amazing technique of amplifying it. And when we're talking about amplification with the PCR, we're talking about, you know, a billion fold once you get up to sort of high 30s, 40 cycles. Um, it's absolutely, you know, a thousand billion kind of uh, right. fold amplification. And at that level, we can actually, um, you know, use um, fluorescent markers or other markers to, to really see that the, um, the genetic material is present. The, the problem with it was, was that it was not designed for a clinical diagnostic tool um, to use in like humans and to then make, um, you know, decisions based around treatment or diagnostic classifications. And that's where it's completely gone off course. And Carrie Mullis was very clear on that and was very, um, he got quite upset at times, um, particularly with the whole HIV AIDS um, fraud where people were saying that the PCR was detecting the virus and could be used to detect viral load and all this sort of stuff and Carrie Mullis was very clear that it couldn't possibly do that because all it can do is amplify selected genetic sequences and so that's the whole thing with the PCR first of all you have to know which sequence you want to amplify so you have to design the primers to amplify a specific sequence. So that implies that you already have knowledge of that particular genetic sequence. Now we can do that with things like, um, you know, if I took a blood test from you, Tim, I'd be pretty happy where I got the genetic material from. I could say it definitely came from Tim because I saw it come out of him mm -hmm. and that's no problem. And then we could do an analysis, look at the uh, genetic material. The problem with the way the PCR is being used for diagnosis of so-called infections is that they're just taking crude samples like from someone's nose or mouth and then just amplifying the genetic material and then saying that this means that you've got COVID, um, which is completely inappropriate for so many reasons. Because to do that, first of all, you'd have to prove that these genetic sequences are specific to some sort of pathogen and they certainly haven't done that i mean nobody's got anywhere near close to physically isolating a pathogen and then working out which genetic sequences it has and then creating a pcr test that will specifically detect those sequences so that's the first problem but it, it goes even deeper than that because so what if you did detect these sequences it's like all the i don't think the thing exists which we're talking about here but even something that can be shown to exist, like say, you know, you've got, um, you know, hundreds of millions of bacteria up your nose at any one time. Now I could run a PCR and detect all sorts of bacteria up your nose, but it doesn't mean anything. It's just because you detect them doesn't mean that it's making you sick or has yeah. anything to do with a clinical condition. So if you zoom in yeah. enough, you're going to find whatever you're looking for. Totally. And um, the, the other thing is, is that people don't realize the history of how PCR has never been used 
to diagnose illnesses like this on a, a global scale, let alone a much smaller scale. And I mean, we saw that back in, uh, it was around 2006 um, in Dartmouth um, Hospital where they thought they had a pertussis, you know, whooping cough outbreak. And they started rolling out their PCR that they'd invented. And they thought they were diagnosing hundreds of cases. And it was, they were, wow, it's spreading everywhere. They're shutting down the hospital. They're canceling all their services. And then a few months later, one of the microbiologists said, well, can we actually find this alleged pathogen, you know, in this case, Bordetella pertussis, and went back and tried to find any examples of these people who tested positive with the PCR and not one of them they could find evidence of Bordetella pertussis the bacteria in the culture so I mean we've got all these examples of and the same thing with HIV um, the whole bogus use of PCR you know supposedly to detect viral load but has nothing to do with the health of the person so you're getting some people they're saying oh yeah the, the viral load's really high with the PCR that they're completely well and other people yeah. who are almost dead and they're saying, oh, the viral load's barely detectable. You know, it's all bogus. So yeah, unfortunately, um, I, th I think it's really something that's got to be addressed and people have got to understand that because it's not going to get better and they're moving from monoplex PCR like we saw in 2020, 2021, where it just tests for one, you know, alleged pathogen like SARS-CoV-2 to going to multiplex uh, PCR where you'll take a sample and it's just going to test for whatever they can find. You know, they'll say, oh, this, we checked for 10 things and uh, we found that this is what you've got. And they'll, they'll say it's some new virus or, or some um, flu influenza um, virus for the year. And I mean, it's just, it's completely bogus. This has got nothing to do with health. Um, this has got nothing to do with the days when you'd actually go and see a health practitioner and talk about your symptoms and be examined and all this kind of thing. This is just technicians um, sticking your nasal swab onto a test and then coming up with all sorts of um, diagnostic claims. So, yeah, it's a real shame. And the, the PCR was a great research tool. Um, it's still got many uses um, in um, laboratory research. Uh, I'm not um, you know, dismissing it on those terms. But in terms of for diagnosing problems in humans and the way it's being used at the moment, it's complete fraud. Okay. So the PCR is basically like a handsaw and we're trying to drive nails and they're trying to use it like a hammer. That's the, uh, it, 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 it's kind of like, yeah, it, it, it's kind of like, um, let's say like my lawn outside is, is being trampled. Right. And, and, and I come up with the theory that um, unicorns, it must be unicorns. That's, that's, that's gotta be what's, what's trampling my, my lawn, but I could go buy this PCR test, which will find um, like a white hair. It's really good at finding a white hair in the grass and, uh, and it finds a white hair. And then I claim because I found a white hair that it must be unicorns that are trampling my grass. Even though like my grandpa lives here and he's got a white beard and my cat's got white fur and you know, there's deer that walk by with white hair. There are a million reasons why there might be white hair. But a PCR can come in. It's not finding a unicorn, okay? They're not going in and looking for the virus. They're looking for a tiny little thing, a little tiny piece of RNA, which they claim if they find that tiny little piece of RNA, then you must have 
quote unquote the virus, but really they're just looking for a white hair and then saying, oh, it must be a unicorn. We got to watch out for unicorns. Everybody take your anti-unicorn medication to keep them away. And I think, um, yeah, Mike's just, it's such an important point is that I hear it even from doctors who make this false claim that the PCR is detecting a virus, but it can't possibly do that. A virus is, you know, this tiny little nanoparticle. It's got a protein coat. It's got a genome inside. It's got specific uh, biological, well, alleged, you know, biological um, capabilities of infecting a cell and, uh, you know, taking over its machinery. It's a very specific type of thing. But the PCR doesn't detect this alleged whole viral particle. All it does is amplify whichever genetic sequence you asked it to select for. And uh, that's the result you see. So essentially, my concern too is with the way a, a lot of these molecular tests are going, whether it's um, PCR or other tests like antibodies in people's bloods, is that we're just all, all they're witnessing is chemical reactions on a test strip. And from this, you know, witnessing a chemical reaction and test kit, they're making all sorts of claims about what's happening to the person or what's happening in the community. And it's, it's really just, um, it, it's science that's just completely gone astray. And part of the problem too, is you get very few people that understand the process from start to finish. So most of the doctors who are seeing the patients, they don't understand how the PCR works. And most of the people who work in the lab and are following protocols, uh, they and are being instructed that this is the way you do things. Um, they don't have any idea how human physiology works. So you and you did you just don't get a lot of people that look at it from start to finish. And mm. uh, that's the kind of research we do um, as doctors trying to have that understanding of what actually goes on at a chemical level, at a molecular level, through to what happens um, at a you know, health level or community level. Yeah. And I was part of your documentary. I was watching, they, they mentioned like, here's the scientific evidence, like a paper that was written. And if a doctor just reads the first paragraph, they're going to be misled because they have to actually read the whole thing to really understand it. And I was told by a doctor, he said, most doctors don't even know. And he was one. He said, most of us don't even know how to read clinical research and decipher it. And a lot of times it's, it might say something in the first paragraph or two, but then the, it'll actually debunk itself mm. if you read the whole thing. So, but a lot of doctors are so busy, they read it. And then it's like in their mind, that's legit. It's the way it is. They read that first paragraph. And then it's just like assumed that that's the way it is. So it's unfortunate. And then you have clients or patients coming in and the doctors relaying that information to them. And they've only read the, the first paragraph. So it, it, it just, uh, the reason why I wanted to have you guys on was kind of, you know, COVID's kind of this whole thing is, is it's like wwf wrestling you know it's just a big show if you want to watch it and be a part of it and get all feared out go ahead um and i kind of wanted to recap and just kind of go over that for our listeners but at the same time the reason why is i want them to watch the documentaries because you guys put a lot of time and effort and energy in interviewing people and getting to the truth on many points the polio just going back i mean you know ddt all these things that have been propagated on us by our own government our our and our taxpayers dollars have, have done this i really want people to get educated even if they were like they took it hook line and sinker watch the documentary with an open mind and maybe shed some new light on it and based on what you know now you'd be like oh 
Yeah, I did get lied to. And be ready because this is not the end. It's going to continue. They like, I showed you that graph. They like profits, power, profit, and control. This model is working. It's working very effectively. And they're going to use fear tactics and COVID-20, COVID-21, swine flu, beard, call it the bird flu, beard flu, car flu, tree flu. They're going to come up with something. It's 24-7. Oh, it's they're going to sell you something. Create a problem. Give you the fake solution. I really appreciate you guys coming on today. And um, was there any uh, last words, Michael, that you wanted to share with the um, with the listeners before you before we take off? Um, no, I mean one of the most like you know one of the things that's happened in, in making the documentary really is just that like I've had the chance to meet so many um, so many like fascinating, awesome people, um, and I like count today as one of them. I'm really uh, um, you know I think it's really inspiring um, when you step out of the the cult of mainstream uh, thinking and you start um, asking questions and uh, you'll find what I found is that there's all these brilliant, brilliant people out there who, um, who actually know what they're talking about. And to be a part of that community, that's, that's been really inspiring for me. So I, yeah. I really appreciate that you're out there and you're doing what you do. And um, I want to uh, kind of invite other people to say, hey, you're not going to be alone when you when you take the mask off, and you know everybody thinks like, you know, oh man, what if we? But everybody else is wearing it. No, man, you're you're actually kind of uh, there's there's a lot of really brilliant people out there uh, that that you, you can yeah. Join. Just remember the at one time everybody, a lot of people thought the Earth was flat, and you would get stoned to death if you thought otherwise. So it's all about belief systems. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. And our listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, I hope you do. Please like, share, and subscribe. Um, I love you guys. Um, try to bring you guys great content. And make sure to go to theviraldelusion.com. That's where you can uh, download that um, this wonderful documentary, the theviraldelusion.com. And you can get up to speed on a lot of stuff. You guys, you guys did a really good job covering. I looked at the titles. I've, I, like I said, I've, I'm through part of it. There's a lot of information in there, and um, I think it's a good one for for you to really. I really want you guys to watch the documentary, internalize it, and a lot of you are just gonna re, you know, relearn what you already know. Remember, there'll be some new stuff in there. But again, this is to really set people up so for the next thing that comes, that you're just not gonna just be like, you know. Uh, a dumb system and just take whatever comes to you and what everybody's perpetrating on the news and TV and all this and billboards and stuff like that. And our government paid advertising. It's our money doing this to us. So that's it until next time, change yourself, change your world. And I'll see you guys soon. Bye for now. Thanks for listening again to the health hero show. I'm your host, Tim James. And remember, change yourself, change your world. And we'll see you again on the next episode. Talk to you soon. You have just listened to The Health Hero Show with Tim James. <laughs>